Good evening. I thank you guys for inviting me to come. And yesterday I was a little harried because I drove in and just had like a minute or so before I got here. Didn't do any housekeeping matters. That's what we call it in the courtroom, housekeeping matters, before you get to the trial. Um, I did want to say thank you and just acknowledge that uh, we have been received very hospitably, very well taken care of, and we thank you for that. When we got to the room yesterday, there was a huge basket of goodies, and I was glad that was there because I brought my boys with me, and they just immediately started dividing stuff up. I'm taking this, I'm taking that. Uh, Thank you all for that because I brought no snacks. Um, And part of the reason we didn't have any snacks is because my wife wasn't with me. That's kind of her department. Um, But that was the other thing I wanted to make sure to say was uh, my wife would normally come with me on a trip like this, but I am in some ways a preacher's husband. Like my wife has a lot of speaking obligations and so forth, and she's got one coming up this week, and it just would have been a little bit too difficult for her uh, to make this trip. So I wanted to, to say that as well. And the last thing I'll say, uh, in the lesson last night, I mentioned this Greek term, polytumai, uh, and I said it was mentioned one time in the New Testament. And this morning, a preaching brother of mine texted me and said, uh, it's two times. So I said, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And in case anybody else is checking me, it's two times. Acts 23 and 1, different form, but the same word. One time by Paul, two times in the New Testament. Make a note of that, please. All right. A balanced view of worship. We've been thinking about this idea of balance, and I'll tell you, it impresses me that your congregation is using balance as its theme. Can I say to you that balance is something that should characterize the people of God because it is something that characterizes God himself. And whenever God's people get out of balance, in whichever way they might fail, if they go too far left or too far right, you're going to run into problems. In my experience, people have gotten out of balance in this idea of worship. And I think there are a couple of ways that this can happen. And I want to touch on these two ways, at least, here tonight. First, I think people are out of balance as to what it means to worship God. I think people have uh, a misunderstanding, and they have multiple ways they might misunderstand, but I think a lot of God's people have a misunderstanding about what it even means to worship God. And I want to think about that for a few moments with you tonight. And then the other thing I think that people can get out of balance about is how we actually engage in individual worship in a corporate setting. You see, the fact is we are all individuals. And when we meet together, we are doing something together, but But that creates a kind of a dynamic that does require balance. How much of this is on me and how much of it is on those around me? I want to think about that with you here tonight. We know that that worship is important, vital, a critical part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, the public worship, the public assembly is not the only thing. Uh, that's important to us in terms of being a Christian or living the Christian life. But there is an extended degree to which it is a certain focal point in our Christianity. That is, we have this time set aside each week where we'll stop doing other things to come together with those of like precious faith to lift up our hearts and our hands to God. I remember in... Uh, In Exodus 20, where God is giving the Ten Commandments, you know, he's taken the children of Israel out of the wilderness and he says to them, I am the Lord your God. And then he says to them in verse number three that they were not to make any graven image. And he says several things to them. But among the things he says in that one verse, he says, you shall not listen to it. Bow down to those graven images. You shall not serve those graven images. I think that people don't realize that the idea of worship is multifaceted. It requires or it involves more than one thing. So you have to have a balance. You must strike an equipoise in your minds so that you can carry these two things along in proper proportion. The first thing, the idea of complete submission to God. 
Worship is complete submission to God. The idea of delivering your heart over to him as it were. Now, if people will see this, recognize this, and emphasize it to the exclusion of other things, when they do that, they get out of balance, and so then their public assemblies take on a sort of charismatic kind of flavor where it's all about their their passion. It's all about their emotions and ex- being excited and things like that. And I'm telling you, worship ought to be exciting. But if you look at that to the exclusion of other things, you get out of balance. But I do want us to recognize that that worship should be exciting. It should be passionate. It It should move our hearts. When people skew in the other direction in this regard, what they wind up doing is sort of going through the motions and trying to make sure they dot every I and cross every T and it looks to be lifeless. There doesn't seem to be any passion in it. And I say to you, those folks are also missing the mark. And I have been to many congregations across our nation and seen where congregation of air to the left Or to the right. And I say to you, my encouragement to you is be balanced in your worship. Complete submission to God. I won't drag you through some of the original terms and so forth, but there there are several words in the Old Testament translated worship at times. One of them has to do with this idea of bowing down and being prostrate. Before God, when you see this word used, you'll see people doing things like bowing their heads before someone who is in a a position of authority to them. Now, sometimes those people might be folks who are just human beings and sometimes those people or those folks will be God himself or sometimes it'll be some idol that people are worshiping instead of God. But you'll see people bowing their heads. You'll see people bending their knees and then bending their backs after they bend their knees to to get right down to the ground. That is a posture of submission. And I say to you, the Bible calls that worship. And God expects people to bow themselves, to bow their hearts to him as a sign of submission. When you come to the New Testament... You'll find that you have a word, a Greek term there. There's a couple of different words that are used, but one of them is used consistently and translated worship. And it has the meaning of blowing a kiss toward someone else. And often that term is used with respect to God. The idea of blowing a kiss as a token of adoration and esteem toward God. Interesting to me. When you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you see this same Greek word being used in the place of this Hebrew term that I just mentioned. That is to say, when those Jews or when those uh, those Jews translated the Hebrew Bible, those Hebrew scriptures into Greek in the centuries just before Jesus came, they equated these two words. Now, the word, whatever they are, whatever those words are, have the idea of submission and submission is absolutely part of what it means to worship God. You'll notice that in the book of Revelation, and this is in several places in the look of in the book of Revelation, you'll see the four beast imagery of the four beasts in the book. And you'll see the 24 elders being depicted in the book. And when you see them time and time again, chapter four, chapter five, chapter seven, chapter 11, chapter 19, time and time again, they are bowing themselves before God. And the Bible's calling that worship. That's their submission to God. You guys remember in chapter two, in Matthew chapter two, where we see the birth of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that some folks had come along because they had heard that Jesus had been born. Listen to this. Matthew chapter two, verse number 10, beginning when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. That child is Jesus. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Two things happening there. Did you see it? 
The Bible says they fell down and worshipped him. They, they were submitting to him a baby because they recognized that he was more than just a baby. And having done that, the Bible says they also offered their gifts to him. Two things going on. The first is a submission. The Bible calls that worship. I say to you, if you want to worship God acceptably, it does begin with the heart, does it not? You cannot worship God acceptably without completely submitting to him. Now, whatever might follow after that will or will not be acceptable based upon the condition of your heart. It doesn't matter if you get all of the steps right if your heart is not right. Worship is a complete submission to God. The word that I mentioned, the Greek word, does refer to a complete submission. You can see this in the New Testament church context in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, now Paul, you remember, is dealing with some things in the public assembly uh, there in that chapter, he's got some concerns about how things are unfolding, and, and we won't take time to sort of deal with all of that, but I do want to uh, just make reference to one of the things that he says. Now, he's saying here that um, if you're going to speak in these miraculous languages and so forth, you've got to be careful how you handle all of that because it'll cause confusion, among other things, uh, with people who do not understand what is going on. Don't know God. Don't understand what is going on. Now, take a listen to this. First Corinthians 14. I'll begin at verse 22 for a little bit of context. So then he says, thus tongues or these miraculous languages are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together. Now, y'all know that's the assembly right there. If the whole church comes together, he says, and all speak in tongues, these miraculous languages, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? They won't understand what's happening. Then he says in verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Listen to it. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He is falling on his face, worshiping God. You see, when you teach the Bible, when you teach people what God expects of them, The appropriate response is for them to humble themselves and submit themselves to God. The Bible calls that worship. I say to you, you can be right and wrong at the same time. If you only get half of what the Bible is talking about, about worship, you are in a prime position to get it wrong. Worship is a complete Submission to God. It is a matter of the heart. But it's not only a matter of the heart. Worship is also a matter of the hands. In Exodus 20, again there in verse 3, God tells Israel that they were not to bow down. That's your idea of submission. Nor serve. That's your idea of service, nor serve these idols. The idea of submission is a matter of the heart, isn't it? But in the matter of service, that is a question of the hands, isn't it? It's not just your attitude and your attitude toward God has to be right. It's also your action. What are you doing? I remember in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse number 30, The Bible in 1 Kings 12 talks about the breaking away of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. So you have two groups of people where you were supposed to have only one. And God knew that he told Jeroboam he's supposed to kind of take away these northern tribes because of the problems that had developed under Solomon and so forth. Get all of that. 
But when he did take the king, the tribes of the north away, we're told that he set up two centers of worship, one at Bethel and one at Dan. And changed, corrupted all kinds of things about what God had proscribed. And the Bible says in verse number 30, this thing became sin. Because the people went to Dan, which is as far away as they could get from Jerusalem, instead of going to Jerusalem where God wanted them to go. I'm saying to you, listen, you can have all the right attitudes you want. You need to make sure your actions are also in keeping in conformity with the will of God. You need both action and attitude, heart and hands. You need both. It has to be balanced. And so we look for an equipoise, such as the fancy way to say an equilibrium. We want these things to be kept in proper proportion in our worship to God. In the New Testament, we have another Greek term that is sometimes translated worship, but more often it is translated serve. This is an action word. It's not just the idea of being submissive to God. It's not just the idea of humbling yourself before God. It carries this idea of doing things. Look at Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is uh, dealing with some of his Jewish brethren. He's got some concerns about about how they have done things in the past. And uh, let's see here. Let's take a look at verse, we'll begin at verse number 41. Now, Stephen is trying to correct them, straighten them out where they've gotten some things wrong. And one of the things they've gotten wrong is this idea of worship. In chapter 7, in verse number 41, he says, And they made a calf in those days, after God had brought them out of Egypt, they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God gave turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Now, what is he saying? God gave them over to worship the host of heaven. That word is the Greek word that is oftentimes translated serve. And what he has in mind here is not just their attitude, but what they were doing. They were offering things to idols. And Stephen says that is part of Israel's problem. That is part of where you went wrong. You see the Bible talk about the woman Anna, the prophetess in the New Testament, and it talks about her ceaseless prayers and her ceaseless offerings, fasting and so forth to God. The Bible calls that worship service to God. You see, sometimes individual, individual actions are characterized in your New Testament as acts of worship. Anybody ever heard that term before? I don't know if y'all use that around here. Uh, the individual things that we do in offering to God are properly characterized as acts of service, acts of worship to God. They're depicted that way in the Old Testament and the New. As a matter of fact, when you read the New Testament reflections on the work of the priests in the Old Testament, the Bible refers to their work as service, worship to God. They would go into the temple and so forth, prepare these sacrifices and offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people when the people came and wanted to present things to God. The Bible calls those acts of service, acts of worship. Individual actions that we take properly characterize as acts of worship, service, the work of our hands. There also is a sense, though, in which our lives are offerings to God. Now, I know sometimes people kind of twist this, but y'all just stay with me for a second. You know, some people will get into some arguments and debate. Everything we do is worship and all that. Well, listen, I kind of have some question about some of that. But I do think that our lives as as a whole are supposed to be offerings to God. I remember 
Paul's saying he was ready to be poured out. What's he saying? He's saying, I've given my entire life to serving God, and I'm ready to give my life as a final offering, my whole life, an act of service to God. You remember in Romans chapter 12? Look at Romans chapter 12. I know we, I know that we, uh, familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2, but sometimes maybe we don't think about it in this connection, in this context. If you look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, this is the English Standard Version, spiritual worship. I know the King James Version says your reasonable service. And then, how is this supposed to look? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Question, what does he have in mind in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Not discreet acts of worship. What he has in mind, he says, give your body, give your entire life a living sacrifice. So we worship God. It's not just these steps that we go through, the various procedures, the discreet work of our hands. There is a sense, though, in which our entire lives ought to be service to God. In that respect, I say it's appropriate to say our lives ought to be worship. So, we have this idea of submission to God. And I say to you, if you don't have the right attitude, if you don't have the right heart, you cannot worship God in an acceptable way. But we also have this idea of our action. We also have this idea of our hands And we have to make sure we're doing the things that God wants us to do. When we understand these two concepts together, I say it's not about what what I like. It's not about what I prefer. It's not about what pleases me. Right. Because the offering is not to me. I knew (laughs) I heard a brother say once, you know, I didn't really enjoy the services. And then another brother said, well, that's good because we weren't trying to please you. You know, you got to make sure you have this you have this straight in your mind. This is about our submitting to God. He didn't ask us what we wanted to do. He told us what would please him. And we come to him with bowed heads on bended knee, putting our faces to the ground in submission to his will because we love him that much. That's the heart that brings us into the assembly. And that's the heart that controls everything we do in the assembly. Because that's true, we make sure that what we do with our hands is just what he told us he wanted us to do with them. It's a balance that you have to strike. This is the kind of thing I like to remind elders of and preachers of and worship leaders, deacons and so forth, because there will sometimes be currents that come through communities, that come through congregations where people will demand going this way or that way in this respect. They will demand that you leave the balance that God gives us in the Bible and skew over toward emotionalism or skew over toward a passionless keeping of rules. The truth is so often right there in the middle. You can't give over to extremists on either side. You know what you wind up doing? In your hurry to get away from one error, you run right past the truth. The truth is right there in the middle, balanced before our balanced God. So, complete submission, consistent service to God. I say to you that Well, that's what worship means. It means submission and service. It means attitude and action. It means heart and hands. And a balanced congregation is going to keep those things in mind. That's the first thing, the meaning. The second thing I wanted to think about with you is this idea of keeping a balance with respect to the fact that our worship is a a group of individuals 
doing something together. I mean, the fact that we're all in here together doesn't mean that we are all individually doing things in the midst of the group because we are. That also has to be balanced. And I'll tell you what I sometimes see, what I sometimes hear that makes me think this is something that we should uh, keep in mind. It may be something that we need to talk about a little more often than we sometimes do. I've heard Christians sometimes say they fail to attend the assembly or they didn't fully participate in the assembly because they didn't get anything out of it. I don't know if you've never heard that around here. Y'all don't do that in Kentucky. But everywhere else that I've been, I've heard people talk like that. And I've heard people say things like, the preacher didn't move me or the song leader didn't move me or the prayer didn't move me. And I think to myself, okay, were you in a condition to be moved? I don't say that every preacher does a great job every time. I'm sure that there have been plenty of times where I've not done a great job. I don't say that every song leader does a great job every time. But I do think that many of the times when individuals are critical of other individuals, it's not the person they're criticizing that is the problem. It's a group activity, but every individual is responsible for their part in the group's activity. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And so I thought maybe we should give that some thought. If I want to make the most of my worship assembly as I gather together with you, I have some responsibility for making sure that I put in the most. When I put in the most, it makes it more likely that I'll get the most out. So I want to make some suggestions to you. We have to individually prepare for the presence of God. We have to individually prepare, making sure that our hearts are right, our attitudes are right before we ever come into the assembly. Part of that preparation is spiritual. Part of that preparation is mental. Part of that preparation is physical. Spiritual preparation for the presence of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22. Now, you know, uh, the, I was going to say Paul right there. I don't know for sure that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Don't get me going down that road. Uh, but I'm just going to say the Hebrews writer. OK, I know some people who feel real strong about it, but they can't prove it. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse number 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, listen to this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now he says we ought to draw near, but draw near how he says you need to make sure that you've taken a look at yourself spiritually before you come I have known people that have come to the assembly of God's people and they knew they weren't right when they walked out when they walked in they knew they weren't right and you know how they walked out? The same way they walked in, they still were not right. And those people would complain about everybody and everything that was going on in the assembly. The problem was right here with them. They were never going to be right. They had not prepared themselves for the presence of God. They didn't have the right attitude. They were not submissive to the will of God in other aspects of their lives. So when they come into an assembly of people who are submitting to God in the various aspects of their lives, they don't fit in. They're not in a condition to get anything out because they're not putting the right things in. I say to you, we have an individual responsibility in the assembly to make sure we're ready to come into the presence of God. You make sure that uh, if there's something in your heart that's not what God wants it to be, you deal with that before you get here. That's your job. That's not our job. That's your job. It's not everybody else's job to examine your heart. That's your job. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's our individual jobs. 
Does that make sense to y'all? Y'all awfully quiet. (laughs) Preparing for the presence of God. There's a mental preparation that is involved as well. I've looked to see that I've that I've lived the way God has wanted me to live over these last several days, these last several weeks. And as best I can tell, as best I can tell, I have a clear conscience before God. Well, that's my spiritual preparation to come into his presence. What about my mental preparation? I mean to say there are just some things that I need to make sure that that I've sort of thought about and dwelled on before I approach God so that I can approach him with the right kind of heart, the right kind of attitude. You know, you can't sort of come into the building listening to ESPN on your way in here and listening to the world news on your way in here and then walk in here and think you're just ready, Freddy, because it doesn't work that way. What's on your mind? There's all kinds of things in the world to distract you from the majesty of God, but that's the one thing that should be on our minds when we get here. It's a fearful thing, an awesome thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's what we ought to be thinking about. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, it really is one of my favorite passages of scripture. And you know, everybody says, I say that and I've got several that I read, but this really is high on my list of favorites. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees God in his vision. And I'll just start at verse 1 here. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And he called, and they, one called to another and said, Listen to this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, these are heavenly beings who are in the presence of God. And they're overwhelmed by his holiness and his glory. They say he's a thrice holy being. I think that uh, if they're in his presence and that's what overwhelms their thoughts when they're in his presence, maybe that's the kind of thing that should be overwhelming our thoughts when we come into his presence. We ought to be meditating on that all during the week. We should be meditating on that as we drive over to the building. And and maybe we should stop and, and pray about that just before we come into the building, just how majestic he is. All that he has done, all that he has made, all the world in the palm of his hand. Is that what we think about before we come into his presence? Because if it is, I tell you, that puts us in a right frame of mind to bow our knees and bend our backs right there in front of his throne when we come together in this place and call ourselves offering something to him. It's mental preparation. That's not a question of you being in sin or not being in sin. That's just a question of you remembering who it is that you're about to approach and making sure you have the right attitude as you go about the approach. Mental preparation. The Bible says, uh, I remember Job in, uh, in Job 11. If there's iniquity in your heart, if there's iniquity in your heart, you need to deal with that. That's true. But even if there's not iniquity in your heart, you need to think about the person that you're about to approach in worship. Let that humble you. Let that let that give you the right attitude. We also need to make sure that we have physical preparation. I could say a lot more about the mental preparation, but I'm going to pass on because I've got a few more things I want to mention. We do need to make sure that we have physical preparation. I don't know that we spend much time talking about this, much time thinking about this, but but listen, I'm not a rule maker. I don't intend to be a rule maker. I just want to make a suggestion, an idea, a principle that I think is worth keeping in mind. You just take me at my word. I'm not trying to make any laws or anything like that. I'm suggesting a principle that you might want to keep in mind. The way we present ourselves physically means something to us and to other people. We know that in every aspect of life. We do. 
it sends a message. It communicates something to other people how we adorn ourselves, how we present ourselves physically. And it means something to us, too. So I tend to dress a little differently if I am, say, going into Walmart to pick something up. And if I'm going into a courtroom to do official business there, I just it means something to me. I have a different frame of mind. And I don't tell you what that means for you in terms of how you might adorn yourself going into Walmart or going into the courtroom. Although I've seen a lot of people go into courtrooms, you know, and they tend not to dress like they're going to Walmart. Uh, when there's something really important on the line and they know that they're appearing before someone who has a lot of power and in a position of authority, they tend to try to adorn themselves in a way that communicates something about them, the sobriety and the seriousness and so forth that they're taking this particular this particular meeting. And I just say to you, we should think about that. How's that? I'm not trying to make any laws. I'm just saying let's not act like it doesn't matter at all because it does matter here. We shouldn't try to judge other people by what they do and don't have. You didn't hear me say run out and buy a new wardrobe. You didn't hear me say don't come to services if you don't have this or that because I don't mean any of that. That's not what I mean. I just hear people say sometimes it doesn't matter. And I think, well, wait a minute now. It doesn't mean everything, but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything like there is a middle ground and it does mean something. Now, you can disagree with me. That's all right. I tell people at uh, Faulkner all the time, you can disagree. You're free to disagree. I'm still right. (laughs) But I don't I don't intend to rob you of your your freedom to disagree. Go ahead. Just still right. I do mean that as a joke, although I'm not joking. I do mean it as a joke. (laughs) So we're preparing for the presence of God. We have to make sure our attitude is right. And I'm just saying Don't be haphazard and assume that your attitude is right. Spiritually, take a close look at your life and make sure that you're not trying to approach a thrice holy God in a haphazard manner because he has nothing to do with sin. Mentally, cast out all kinds of distractions so that you can focus on the one who brought us together in the assembly. Give him all of your attention Because he deserves it. And physically, just think about how you would perceive the presentation that you make. And just because God deserves it, try to make the best presentation you feel you can make because he deserves that, too. The second thing. The presence of God, our attitude, our presentation to God, our actions, our hands. This also involves spiritual, mental, and physical preparation. Spiritual preparation. How so? How spiritual preparation for the presentation that we make? You know, there is a presentation that we have to make to God, and we ought to make sure that the thing that we offer is going to be acceptable to him. Now, I noticed that. You know, when we come together, we will oftentimes begin and we may do a little something before, but it doesn't take too long before we pray. You know why we do that? And oftentimes, I mean, all the places I've been, oftentimes there's one thing people tend to say. They'll say, you know, forgive us of our sins and so forth. And then they'll say that they pray that what we're doing is going to be acceptable. Well, listen, prayer is a part of making sure that our presentation is what it ought to be. Another thing in this respect of spiritual preparation is reconciliation. You remember in Matthew 5 and 23 and 24 uh, where Jesus says that if you're going to to make an offering and then you remember that there's a problem with you and another brother, he says, leave your offering, go and be reconciled and then come back and make your offering. Now, what's he saying? There's nothing wrong with the offering, but you need to make sure that you're in a spiritual condition to make the offering. There's spiritual things that we have to take care of. It's not just going through the motions. Just because it looks okay doesn't mean that it is okay. We have to be more careful than that. Take a look at Proverbs 15 and verse uh, verse number eight. Proverbs 15 and verse number eight. This same idea is several times in the book of Proverbs, but I'll just mention this one. In Proverbs 15 and verse number eight. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Now, what's he saying? 
The offering isn't necessarily the problem, the condition of heart. We have to make sure that we examine ourselves spiritually so that we can make the offering the right way in a way that God will accept it. Spiritual preparation for the activity of worship. Not just approaching God, but for doing the things that we do. I tell you, sometimes I've known guys, this is just me, y'all don't know these kind of, I've known guys who were just, Meant not living the way they should, and those guys will get up there and sing their hearts out. Man, listen, that doesn't work. I have personally known guys who, if you just listen to them preach, you would think, man, that guy has just got a, that guy has got a gift for delivering the word of God, and life was just a hot mess. That doesn't work. They're doing the right thing, not the right way. We have to be careful about that. Now, the mental preparation for our presentation. Look at First Samuel chapter 7. There's a mental preparation that we have to make as well. First Samuel chapter 7. I think I want verse 3. First Samuel chapter 7. Listen to this. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see two things there. He says, direct your heart and serve. You need to direct your heart. This is not the kind of thing that we should do just going through the motions. And it can become like that, you know, because if you do the same thing repetitively, you can do it without even thinking about it. That's never happened to y'all. Let me just tell you, though, let me just tell you, though, if I'm not careful, I can find my mind going on to all kinds of things in the midst of the assembly. Now, that's my human weakness. and Y'all don't have that problem. But in case you ever find yourself in that position, then you know what's gone wrong. You have to mentally prepare for what you're doing. Direct your heart first, then serve. There's other things that we could say, but listen, we have to individually prepare ourselves, is my point, for service. Sometimes when people say, I didn't get anything out of it, the lesson didn't move me, then I say to myself, well, now, wait a minute. I know this preacher is going through a series of lessons. He's been going through this series for a month now. The guy has published the scripture reading before you ever got here. The bulletin was sent out on Wednesday or Thursday. Did you read it? You didn't read it. We've been in this Bible class for two months now. And the teacher has asked us to read certain things, asked us to memorize certain things, asked us to to answer certain questions for reflection before we got here. Did you do that? Well, I see why you didn't get anything out. You're not willing to put anything in. You're not mentally prepared for what we're doing. Okay, the songs congregation where I attend, they send the songs out days before. Now, you didn't look at the songs. You didn't study the words. I'm just saying to you, there is a degree of mental investment that you have to make if you want to get something out. Uh, Sometimes congregations will like have song practices. And this is me being too transparent. Not my favorite thing. That's just me being transparent. And the reason I say that is not because song practice is is bad. It's not bad at all. The reason I say that is because, see, some people might allow that to hinder them. This is not my favorite particular aspect of a gathering. But you know why we have song practices? So that when we sing a song that might not be all that familiar to you at a time when we're trying to offer it to God, that's not your first time singing it. So you're not stumbling over the words, trying to read the notes at the same time as the words, and you're singing the words, and you don't even know what they mean. It's giving you an opportunity to prepare yourself mentally for something that's going to happen. So when we have song practice, you know what? I'm there. 
You'll, fact, there'll be other things like that. It may be something else for you where you'd be like, this is not my, my favorite aspect of our gathering together. Listen, you need to be real careful about missing things like that. It's an opportunity to prepare you for the assembly, and you should take all those opportunities that you can. The last thing I'm going to say about this, there is a physical preparation that has to happen for the presentation to God. We say very little about the idea of preparing your physical, your body physically to give your full attention in the services and make sure that when we're doing the discreet acts of service that we're doing, you're not distracted by something in your control. We don't talk about that a whole lot. Now, we'll sometimes say things like, Silence your cell phone because why? We don't want people to be distracted when your cell phone goes out. How about this one? Use the bathroom before we start. I don't know. I'm not from around here today. I don't want to step on anybody's. Use the bathroom before you start. You know why? Because the human body has to do certain things and uh, yours shouldn't always have to do it 10 minutes into the services. And if you've got the bladder, like I've got a young one over here, the boy's got the weakest bladder on the planet. So we might go two times, three times before the services start because I don't want you getting up during the services. If it can be helped, I don't want you getting up during the services. Eat something during the services. I sometimes hear people say, well, you know, I'm kind of hungry. You know, this guy's going five minutes longer and I'm supposed to eat lunch. You know what? You can't make it an hour without eating. You can't make it 90 minutes without eating because that could be true of you. And if it is, I'm not talking about you. But it's not true of you. You can go 60 minutes, you can go 90 minutes and you do it all the time. And if you have the kind of body that would allow you to be distracted by hunger after 60 minutes or 90 minutes, eat something right before you walk in here. That's in your power. Eat, drink, whatever you need to do. Get enough rest the night before. That's just physical preparation. Now, if you stay up all night, don't get rest during the week. Then you want to fall asleep during the song services. And then you say, I didn't get anything out. I wonder why. You weren't prepared to be here. What am I trying to say to you? Corporate worship is a more dynamic thing than most people realize. Worship itself is more dynamic than most people realize. There's a lot going on. If you're just sitting in the pew, there's a lot going on. The condition of your heart The activity of your hands, all of that is at play. All of that has to be balanced at the same time. The activities of the group and the activity of the individual, all of that has to be balanced. It's all happening at the same time. In a congregation, there are people who are responsible for organizing the services. And those people have some responsibility for making sure that the group is offered a balanced opportunity to worship God. Not tamping down people's enthusiasm, but not allowing enthusiasm to sort of run the train so that we don't care what's going on with the hands. God said he wanted certain things to happen, and those things need to happen, and hopefully those things can happen in enthusiastic, gracious hearts so that we have a balanced approach to worship The leaders in the congregation should be striving to offer that to the people. But the individuals are responsible for what they individually bring to that assembly. We ought to be really careful, really slow to blame other people if we don't feel that we're getting out of worship what we think we ought to get out of it. I'm just saying to you, there's so much preparation that we ought to do before we come into the assembly. And just in my experience, most of us, most of us don't. That's just in my experience. When I'm having a good week, I start thinking about the communion. Tuesday, Wednesday, Because I know that moment in time where we observe the Lord's Supper is going to come and go very quickly. And I've had times in my life where it was almost over and I thought, "Hmm, I kind of missed it. 
I mean, I just I know it happened and I sort of went through the motions there, but I just kind of missed it. And so I like to start reflecting on it early in the week, thinking some each day about Jesus going to the cross and reading those scriptures and meditating on those scriptures. And then when that moment comes, if it takes three minutes, it's the most meaningful three minutes in my whole week. I sometimes I'm not saying I, I don't like to draw attention to myself. I just want you to understand how this can be different. Sometimes in those few minutes. I'm not I'm just sitting there with everybody else. It moves me to tears that just that few minutes because it means that much to me. It doesn't mean that much to me because of the guy who's up here leading the prayer. I'm not looking for him to move me. I was moved before I got here. And I think all of our all of us can experience worship in a more meaningful way if we'll prepare ourselves like that. I never mean to uh, I never mean to offend anyone or step on any toes and I never mean to push my opinion and it may be that some of the things that I've uh, suggested don't sit as well as some others I promise you I didn't come here with an agenda and I don't mean to upset anyone but I do want you to just think to just think about how important worship is it's the kind of thing that we do so often that we can easily begin to take it for granted But we can renew our vigor for worship if we just stop and think really carefully about what it is that we're doing, what our individual responsibility is in the midst of the assembly. And if the leaders will sort of keep in mind their obligation to make sure that they offer people a balanced opportunity to celebrate and serve God at the same time. It's worthwhile. It's worth thinking about. It's worth stopping and reflecting on from time to time because God deserves it. He deserves it. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. He gave us Jesus. He gave us everything. He deserves our best. The Bible says in 1 John 3 and 16, That Jesus loved us enough that he laid his life down. He gave himself. He gave us everything. He deserves our best. If you believe in him, that means you that means you do accept his authority. You don't have any problem approaching him with a submissive heart because you recognize that he is the son of God, that he is the authority. And and that kind of submission, that trusting belief in him, that's going to move you to make changes wherever changes are needed. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you'll perish. This is kind of an either or proposition. This is not something you have to balance. It's going to be his way or it's going to be your way. And if you want to prosper, it's going to be his way. This is not a balancing test. This part is either or. If you trust Jesus, you do it his way. If you're not a Christian, that means you'll have to make some changes in your life. And I don't know what all the changes you might have to make are, but, you know, it really doesn't matter what they are. If you trust Jesus enough, you make those changes. If you're already a Christian, guess what? There's still changes. We all have to make changes every day, every day. And this is a good time to stop and reflect and think about what you can do to serve God better. If you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian today. You come to him by faith, repentance, and baptism. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? You open your mouth and say that. You know what we'll do? We will assist you. Someone here will baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You go into the water outside of Christ, a sinner. You come out of the water a new creation, a saved person, a Christian. If you're not a Christian, please don't leave tonight without obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian and you have something weighing on your heart, you need help, you need prayer, you need encouragement, don't leave tonight without it because